Last Sunday, we looked at the final portion of Elihu's incredible speech in Job 37, where Elihu described God's sovereign control over all storms, especially the life storms. And uh, the book of Job, if you recall, and this, it's been a long time since we were in the very first chapter, first and second chapter as a matter of fact, but the book of Job essentially opens with, with God himself speaking, right? Interacting with Satan, laying down a challenge regarding Job. So, so think of, when you think of the book of Job, think of it opening with God himself speaking, not necessarily God speaking through a human author or a human voice or a human pen, but God himself speaking. And then from there, uh, we see several speeches. I think it's three each uh, from Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and then I think Zophar only gave two. So we see, what, we see God speaking, and then we see these other men, Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar speaking. And then in Job 32, we were introduced to a new speaker named Elihu, and his speech was almost the longest speech in the book of Job, spanning six full chapters, and in my opinion, probably the most helpful speech of all of them. And maybe that's because it comes way later in the book, and he's had an opportunity to assess everything that, that everyone has been saying, and then he can you know, more carefully articulate or lay out his presentation. It makes sense, right, logically. But his was probably the best speech that I've read in the book. And it's certainly almost the longest. Now, in chapter 38, that's what we've come to here. And we're reintroduced to the first speaker. After all these speeches, Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, all that's been said, the meat of the book, the meat of the book's all the chapters in between. But after all of those speeches... God breaks his silence and begins to speak again. But this time, he speaks directly to Job. He's not talking to angels. He's not talking to Satan. He's not talking to anyone else. He is talking directly to Job. Now, Job had asked for a hearing with God so that he might be able to present his case before God. Right? You know, I'm suffering, I'm going through all this stuff, why aren't you doing anything, God? That was his attitude, that's what he wanted, he wanted to argue, his righteousness and how he was innocent and free of any kind of sin and didn't deserve what he was receiving. He made this request and desire for a hearing with God known in several places like Job 31, 35. And what he was asking for is, God, you need to produce evidence and kind of a bill of indictment against me with specific charges which he believed in his mind that he could answer adequately. God, if you have charges against me, I think I can give sufficient evidence against them. This was his attitude and his desire to present this. And actually, when Job finally gets what he wants, a day in divine court, he didn't actually get, <laughs> he, he, he didn't want what he actually got. We'll put it that way. He'd be anticipating this moment to be able to speak to God and hear from God, and he has an idea how it'll play out, but it doesn't play out how he wants. God suddenly burst on the scene and spoke to Job out of a whirlwind. 
asking him over 70 questions. And the questions are rhetorical by default because neither Job nor any finite man could answer them. Why is that? Because they, per they pertain, the questions pertain, or they concern things that only the all-powerful, sovereign God can do. So Job really couldn't answer the questions because they were beyond his pay grade, his finite ability. The questions were not meant to be answered by Job or anyone else. They're not structured and laid out in such a way that we could give any sort of real response to them. They were actually meant to humble Job and put him in his place. They were meant to distinguish the creature from the creator and strike a death blow to Job's pride and self-entitlement. Ultimately, to bring an end to his complaining and his false accusations against God. You're inactive. You don't speak. You don't care. Remember, everything that Elihu pointed out in his speech, Job was accusing God of. Back in Job 37, Elihu declared God's sovereign control. In Job chapters 38 and 39, God himself declares his sovereign rule. Through a series of humiliating questions on rulership, God rebukes Job by declaring 21 things that he alone rules over. We see 11 in Job 38 and 10 in Job 39. This morning we'll focus on the first set. Please take your Bibles and turn over to Job 38. We'll be focusing on verses 1 through 38. We'll pick up where we left off last week and take a look at the first thing God rules over. Remember, this is God himself speaking. Number one, and it makes total sense for God to establish this fact and reality right up front when dealing with a rebel, because that's what Job has become. Number one, God rules over man. He rules over Job. And we see this in verses 1 to 3. We'll pick it up at verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, stop there. God suddenly breaks his silence and speaks to Job. And quite honestly, he's speaking to Job in righteous indignation or anger. God is, is not happy with the way that Job has been misrepresenting him and, and, and hurling accusations against him. So there is a, a tinge or a bit of righteous indignation here. There is some, some anger here. And this, this is holy anger, and it's appropriate. Is it not appropriate? Have we not carefully analyzed Job's attitude over the course of the book? It started good, ended bad. And so God is righteously indignant anger. And it is visible and, and, and audible and visible and direct and, and just powerful here toward his servant. And, and you need to understand, because Job uses metaphor and allegory and these sorts of things, it's all poetry, but we're not looking at metaphors here. We're not looking at an allegory here. When we think of a whirlwind, that's basically a tornado. This is not an allegory or something where you envision the Tasmanian devil in the old Bugs Bunny cartoons. 
This is not a metaphor. This is a literal whirlwind that somehow isn't picking up trailers and hurling them across the Kentucky landscape. This is, this is a whirlwind that is present with God in its midst, but it's not destroying everything in its trail. It's a literal whirlwind. It blows across the landscape right where Job is standing, deliberately dramatizing the awesomeness of this divine encounter. God would speak to Moses in a similar way out of a turbulent storm, Exodus 19, 16 to 17. He would speak in, in a similar manner to the prophet Elijah, 1 Kings 19, 11 to 12. This is not the going to be the first time that God has spoke to one of his servants, a prophet or whomever, through some kind of storm. And, and we need to do something here. We need to connect the dots. Let me, let me just begin to connect the dots here with, with asking a question or two. When did Job's troubles begin? Think back. Many, many months ago, over a year ago, they began when his wealth was snatched up and a great wind flattened his son's house and killed all of his children. Job chapter 1, verses 13 to 19. Is that not when, according to chapter 1, when his troubles began? When his wealth was taken out by the Chaldeans and the, the Sabians and by lightning that burned up a hillside and killed all his sheep. And then a windstorm, we called it a Scirocco, that would be like a desert windstorm, comes through, levels the house where his kids are hanging out, having a great time, kills them all. Now, let me ask you another question. Who controls the wind? God controls the wind. Is that not what we've been learning through Elihu's speech? And even prior to that, we, we learned that God controls the wind, that he directs the wind in Job 26, verse 13, Job 28, verse 25. Another question, who sends forth the whirlwind? Who sends forth whirlwinds? Who sends forth tornadoes? God sends forth the whirlwind from its chambers. Job 37, verse 9. God is now speaking to Job from a whirlwind. Connect the dots. One commentator took the time to do the math and connect all the dots and concluded that God was either in or caused the windstorm that killed Job's children. Does that not cause you, that thought, does that not cause you to recoil a bit in your spirit? To think that God could or would do something like that? The question is, could this be true? Is this commentator onto something? Would God actually do something like this? Well, our modern thinking usually does not allow us to entertain such notions, does it? No, we've been taught to attribute losses, especially the loss of a child or, or something else that's dear to us. 
we've been taught and trained from a, a great many pulpits and a great many books to think that when those difficult losses or terrible things happen, we, we are to attribute or we're taught to attribute those things to the fall of man. We're taught to attribute them to just evil. We're thought to attribute them to the devil. And in some church circles, it's always the devil. And yet there are a great many scriptures that challenge this mindset. Take, for instance, Psalm 123, verse 3. Just a a, a basic principle. And it says that children are a gift from the Lord. The Lord gives them. Couple that with Job 121. We just sang it for crying out loud. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Couple that with 1 Samuel chapter 12, which speaks of the predicted death of David and Bathsheba's newborn baby. God literally predicts and tells the prophet Nathan, the child that you're going to have is going to die. And some would say, well, that's just God's foreknowledge of things. He just knows what's going to play out. That's not what the text says. In fact, David did not attribute the sickness and death of this precious little baby. He did not attribute that terrible thing to the fall, to evil, or to the devil. He knew that it was the result of God's judgment. The prophet Nathan declared, the child born unto you shall die. And then a little later it says, the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and the child became sick, dot, 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 and the child died on the 17th day. 1 Samuel 12, 14 to 18. That's a hard truth. That's difficult for me to swallow. And you can't spin that into something else. It says what it says, and it means what it means. Job did not attribute his losses to the fall, to evil, or to the devil. He did tied basically everything that was happening to him to God because he understood that God is sovereign over creation and can do whatever he pleases with his creation. If Job had our mindset and blamed the deaths of his children on the fall or evil or Satan, then why did he say things like, the arrows of the Almighty are in me? Job 6.4. Why did he insist on arguing his case before the Almighty? Job 13.3. Are we to believe that that Job's desire to appear in divine court was so that he could persuade God to intervene and stop the devil's assaults against him? Is that what we're to believe? That's what our modern mind wants to spin. And yet there's nothing in this book that suggests that that type of thinking was in Job. He knew who was behind his calamity. What did he say in Job 13, 15? Though God slay me, yet I will trust in him. Look, here's the deal. 
God's sovereignty can be a hard truth because it means he literally gives and takes away according to his own discretion. It means that everything we have is from him, even our children, and he can take whatever he gives whenever he chooses. But that, that's, not, that's not a reality and a truth that we like, is it? You have children? They're not yours. They're his. You have a home? It's not your home. It's on loan. It's his. This is what the sovereignty of God means. This is what the rulership of God means. This is the ultimate reality. And, and we have this thinking that, well, what I have is mine and don't anyone dare, including God, take it away from me. And if he takes something away from me, then that just, that's just evil and wrong. Why would you do this to me? This is Job's attitude, is it not? He had gotten himself to a place of thinking that all that he had was actually his. And then once it's snatched up, he's railing against God for taking his stuff, for taking his family. <clears throat> this is a difficult, challenging truth. <clears throat> you know, one of the reasons why it is wrong and sinful for a human being to take another human being's life outside of self-defense because that's that's clear in scripture but one of the reasons why it's called murder and it's wrong is because we are taking a life that we did not give and we have no right to take only God has the right to take a life that he gives he can take a life whenever he chooses according to his own will and purposes Lives are not ours. Our lives are not ours. Were we not bought at a price? We don't belong to ourselves. Our children do not belong to us. My car doesn't belong to us. Lord, take it away and give me a new one. These things are not ours. When, when you are the sovereign creator, you've created all things for your glory, you have the right to do with them as you see fit at all times and i tell you what once we start to come to come to you know to our senses and to a a, a a mediocre small but at least their understanding of these things life actually improves it doesn't get worse it gets worse for us when we deny the sovereignty of god and and the rulership of god Did God not say, now listen to this, God himself said, the earth is mine and all that is in it, Psalm 24 verse 1. Are we to believe that, that this statement is partially true, everything, the, the earth is his and everything in it except what I own is not his, including my kids? The earth is mine and all that is in it. He owns everything. One way that this is expressed is through this kind of, of statement that really doesn't hit the mark, but it gives you the idea that he owns everything. But it's in the statement that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 50, verse 10, which really metaphorically means he owns it all. Everything is his. We must come to terms with God's total and full sovereignty. 
And what we do is we compartmentalize it and pick parts that we want him to be sovereign over. Oh, I love the fact that he's sovereign over my salvation. But I don't know about his sovereignty over these things over here because that means that I could lose those things. And all that is is a rejection of his sovereignty. We are stewards, not owners. When God takes something from us, we think that's evil, almost like theft or something. But it's not evil nor theft because God is the rightful owner. Never forget this, church. Never. It, it's very difficult for us to wrap our minds around and, and to get our hearts around. But it is the reality that we function in. And the sooner we come to terms with it, the better off we will be. Are we to think that we can't trust God with everything because the opposite thinking leads to that verse 2 listen to what God says to Job this is his first question Job actually who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge this really isn't a question it's a rebuke this is a rebuke this is a hard correction my paraphrase, and I'll be paraphrasing a lot, by the way. God is essentially saying, who is this that muddies the truth with such foolish speech? Who's speaking nonsense? This is what he's saying. The answer, it was Job. Job was the one muddying the truth with foolish speech. The more Job spoke, the more he obscured the reality of God's person and work. Now, we need to remember again that Job did not start this way. He was pretty solid in the beginning, boldly declaring God's sovereignty, His power, and these sorts of things. It was really, his initial speeches were quite amazing, except for the one where he denounced his birth for a whole chapter. He was pretty solid in the beginning, but over time he had drifted from sound thinking and sound speech and eventually became a victim and an accuser, which we are all capable of becoming if we're not careful. Verse 3, listen to what God says. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Like a five-star general, God calls Job to attention. Literally, the phrase here, dress for action like a man, it is a military term. Job was being summoned to appear in a military tribunal. He was about to be held accountable for breaking rank, for disrespecting his commanding officer. God is setting his soldiers straight here. He is saying, Job, you do not question my authority or tell me what to do. I am the commanding officer. I tell you what to do. Dress like a man and prepare for battle. As if Job could battle the word of God. Now, remember, as God is saying this, he's saying it from the middle or the midst of this thundering voice. And it is a thundering voice. It's coming from inside a tornado that isn't destroying everything like the flames were not destroying the bush. Do you think that Job was a little scared here? A little terrified? He'd been rambling on and... 
hammering his friends. He hears an amazing speech by Elihu, and he's probably still thinking, this guy's a bonehead too. And then all of a sudden, this twister appears in front of him, and this sovereign, ruling voice comes from the midst of it. Do you think that was a sight? I think he was terrified. He'd have to be terrified. What's the point? The point is really quite simple. God is the creator and ruler over Job and ruler over, over all men, right? That's the point. Therefore, Job should humble himself, silence his voice, and submit to God's rule. Right? God is like a general speaking to a soldier. You don't give me orders. I'm sovereign over you. I rule you. Therefore, he's establishing his ruleship, rulership over all men, including Job. He is over men. He is over all men, even the lost. Let's move to the second thing God rules over. Number two, God rules over the earth. Verses 4 to 7. Listen to what he says. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? <laughs> How, you can't answer that. Where were you when I, when I created the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. <laughs> or who stretched out the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Man, God is like grilling Job now. He's saying, were you present when I laid the foundation of the earth? What's the answer? No. Did you determine the earth's measurements? No. Did you stretch the line upon it? No. Do you know the earth's base, which it has sunk? No. Were you present when the morning stars sang and all the sons of God shouted for joy? No. Verse 7, it says, The morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. While God was creating the earth, what are these morning stars, these sons of God? They're angels. Some debate over what the morning stars are, but I think that's synonymous with sons of God. They're angels. What is God saying here? The angels were present when God laid the foundation, determined the, determined the measurements, sunk the base, and laid the cornerstone of the earth. This means that God created the angels before he created the earth. Boy, that kind of throws a weird wrench into your creation thoughts, doesn't it? This is God speaking. He's telling us the angels were there rejoicing, watching as God created the earth. Now, exactly when the angels were created is very difficult to determine since time, the way we understand it, did not exist before God actually laid the foundation of the earth. It is possible the angels were created just prior to God's creation of the earth or well before it in our reckoning of time. We know that angels existed by the first day of creation in Genesis 1 because they witnessed God's creation of the foundations of the earth, praising God for the beauty and majesty of His work. It's interesting, isn't it, that they were there to witness that. What's the point God is the creator and ruler over the earth. Job isn't. Although he's been kind of acting like the creator by constantly challenging the creator and 
trying to steer the creator and tell the creator there's a better way. God is clearly making this point. I rule over the earth, not you. Therefore, Job should humble himself, silence his voice, and submit to God's rule. Let's move to the third thing God rules over. And by the way, these go really quickly. They're very self-explanatory. They don't require much commentary at all. Number three, God rules over the sea, verses 8 to 11. God says this to Job next, Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far, uh, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Stop there. God is, is using a birthing metaphor here and he uses it a little bit later but essentially what he's doing is again grilling Job like he's a whopper at Burger King he's just simply asking did you shut the doors to keep the sea in when it broke through and was born no you didn't were you there when I made the clouds like a coat for the sea no were you present when I wrapped the sea in dark clouds no did you watch as I put limits on the sea when I put its doors and bars in place? He's talking about the land. Were you there for that? No. Were you even there to hear me say to the sea, you may come this far, but no farther? This is where your proud waves must stop. Okay, sea, you're, it's like a proud sea, and it's just expansive and moving, but I've, I've blocked you off with the land. And he's saying, and your waves are proud. Wow, the sea is pretty amazing, right? Pretty intimidating. It seems proud in its vastness and God is saying were you there when I gave that command and stopped it from going any further and ceased its proud waves were you there for that Job no what's the point God is the creator and ruler over the sea not you Job therefore Job should humble himself silence his voice and submit to God's rule. Yeah, it's going to be like a broken record because I'm going to say that over and over and over. Why? Because it's what we need to hear. It's what I need to hear. Fourth thing God rules over. Number four, God rules over the sun. Verses 12 to 15, he says to Job, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Um, it is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Stop. Shifting to his questioning to the rotation of the earth, God presses Job even harder here. In fact, there's a progression to the points that's getting more and more um, intense and absurd like you know, just plainly job cannot do these things that's the absurdity that job could even consider himself to be in charge of these sorts of things he's pressing him harder here he's essentially saying job have you ever given orders to the morning that is had job ever commanded the sun to rise and cause the morning to appear no <laughs> had job ever shown the dawn its place which has to do with ushering in the evening no. God asks, Job, have you ever stretched out the sunlight so it takes hold of the corners of the earth like a blanket which exposes the wicked and shakes them from the evil things they do in darkness? The answer again is 
no. In fact, the wicked are denied their light, the moonlight. That's what he's talking about here. The night is when the wicked were, uh, are far more active and carry out their heinous acts, right? They do most of their devilish deeds at night when they can't really be seen. been watching a show called uh, Flint Town lately on Netflix, and it really just talks about Flint Police Department which doesn't have enough officers for a town of 100,000. They have like 100 officers. They should have 300. And last night in the episode I was watching, a female officer was talking about how, or a female wife was talking about how scared she is for her husband for getting shifted to night shift. Why? Because that's when the crazies come out. That's when more crimes are committed. That's when more murders are committed, literally. And that's the thought here. And yet when daylight breaks their source of light, the moonlight, when it is withheld, what? The wicked cannot more easily perform their wicked deeds. That's the idea here. But really, it has to do with, do you raise the sun and bring down the sun? And when you bring it up, it kind of quells the wicked and puts their in, the, in their place for a bit so they can't do their deeds. Do you do that? What is the point? It is that God is the creator and ruler over the sun. Job is not. He doesn't do any of these things regarding the dawn or the sun or night or anything. Therefore, Job should humble himself, silence his voice, and submit to God's rule over the sun. Fifth thing God rules over. Number five, God rules over the underworld. Verses 16 to 18. He says, Have you entered, says to Job, Have you entered into the springs of the sea? Or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Stop there. God proceeded to question Job about the subterranean waters below the earth's surface. He says, Job, have you entered these mysterious springs? No. Have you walked in the recesses of the deep? No. God questions Job about the gates of death and deep darkness, which refers to Sheol, the place of the death. He's saying, Job, do you comprehend the expanse known as Sheol? No. Can you declare all the mysterious truths concerning the deepest recesses of the earth? The Marianas Trench, Sheol, can you? comprehend these mysteries can you explain them to me once again the answer is no way what's the point god is the creator and ruler over the underworld i've said this a thousand times because we have a, a wrong theology concerning sheol hell hades whatever you want to call it that it's the separation from God. God is not there. This text is telling us, as well as many other texts, God is there. How can the God who is everywhere, all present, not be in the place of suffering? He is there. The separation is from God's grace and mercy there, but not from His presence. The devil doesn't rule and reign in Sheol. It's a place of torment for him. What makes Sheol terrifying is the graceless and merciless presence of God in wrath. He's asking Job, do you understand these things? No, you don't. So be quiet, humble yourself, and submit to my rule 
sixth thing. God rules over the light, verses 19 to 21. He says, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may... Uh, that you may take it to its or take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is so great. The divine science exam kind of shifts to the subject of light and darkness here, because really that's what it is. It's an exam. It's a quiz that Job is failing horrifically thus far. He switches to the subject of light, really. God asks, Job, do you know where light and darkness come from? No. Do you know the paths to their territory? Can you lead me to their home? No. You were not yet born when I created darkness and light. And I think sometimes we think of darkness just as the absence of light, but even darkness did not exist prior to God creating it. Think of that. Chew on that for a little while. He is saying sarcastically to Job, you think the numbers of your days have just filled you with all this wisdom and knowledge concerning all these mysterious things, but they're actually short. Your days are short. Your wisdom is minuscule. What's the point? God is the creator and ruler over the light. Therefore, Job should do the same thing over and over. Humble himself. Stop complaining and hurling accusations against God and submit to His rule. Let's move to the seventh thing God rules over. Number seven, God rules over the snow. And Elihu talked about this quite a bit in the previous chapter. Verses 22 to 23 here in our chapter, God says this to Job, Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Stop. Moving to the subject of the snow, God asked Job, do you know where snow comes from? No. I mean, Job probably could have said, well, you know, when you have moisture in the clouds and it hits a freezing level, then it pours down. So I think he knew that much. But God is saying, it's more than that. There is a natural process that I rule over. But do you know where the snow comes from? And I think we've all probably been in the snow or in in a situation where the snow begins to fall. And it is a bit mysterious, isn't it? Because it's not there one moment and then it starts falling and we're like, ah, and we go like this. And we want it to fall on our tongues. Acid rain, acid rain. Remember that. No, I'm kidding. Right? But this is, it is a kind of a mysterious thing when the snow begins to fall. And this is what he's talking about. Have you, do you know where the snow comes from? No. Have you entered the storehouses where I keep snow? No. Like as if Job could enter the clouds or whatever it is where the snow falls and he could just, these are the storehouses and he could walk around in there and check these places out like a storeroom. Have you done that? No. Have you ascended the heights above and seen the storehouses of hail? That's like pre-snow. And if you live in Texas, it can destroy your car. What's the answer? No, he hasn't. And there's an interesting point here. Snow and hail were to be used in times of trouble, God says. In the day of battle and war, what happens? God can and has unleashed these elements to defend against his enemies. You see this in Isaiah 30, verse 30. Very interesting point. But what is the main point? God is the creator and ruler over the snow. 
Therefore, Job should humble himself, silence his voice, and submit to God's rule. Quit pretending to know everything. Let's move to number eight. God rules over the lightning and rain. This, again, was something that Elihu really pushed in the previous chapter. Verses 24 to 28. What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on the land where there is no man, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? Stop there. God is actually using some poetry here. Pretty cool. He is asking Job, can you tell me where lightning comes from? No. Can you show me its place? No. It's like there's a big electrical box in the sky. Can you flip the switch? No. Can you take me to where the scattering east winds originate, where they come from? You know, we, we don't really know where the wind comes from, it, uh, right? I mean, where is it formed and how is it put together? We can just only feel it on our face and stuff. And maybe we say, well, it feels like it's coming from the east. But where it originates, that's mysterious. He's saying, do you know these things? No. Can you take me to the chamber where wind is stored? No. Oh, let, let me ask you this, Job. Did you cut a channel for the torrents of rain? No. Did you make a way for the thunderbolt? No. Do you bring rain on the barren desert land? And I put dessert on accident. That sounds kind of good right now. A little cake action. Did you bring rain on the barren desert land where men do not live to satisfy the waste, nourish the desolate land, and sprout grass? Answer, no. Does the rain have a father who begets the drops of dew like his children? If so, are you its father, Job? No. <laughs> What's the point? God is the creator and ruler over the lightning and rain. Therefore, Job should humble himself, silence his voice, and submit to God's rule. Ninth thing. We're getting there. Number nine. God rules over the ice, verses 29 to 30. From whose womb did the ice come forth? Here's the birthing metaphor again. From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Again, the birthing metaphor. God is using it to grill Job on the origin of ice, he is essentially declaring, does the ice come from you? Are you the freeze miser or whatever that, remember that old weird, what was his name, the snow miser and the heat miser? You remember those creepy? You remember that? Like if you're really young, you're like, no, Spongebob only. Actually, that would be most of the adults in here. You remember, what was it, Snow Miser and Heat Miser and the Rudolph with the glowing nose? These things terrified me as a child. I've never been the same. I need counseling. And he's essentially saying here, so ice comes from you? No. Do you, in some mysterious way, give birth to the frost of heaven? No. 
Do you harden the waters like stone? No, but I do fall through the ice from time to time. Do you freeze the face of the deep waters? No. What's the point? Broken record. God is the creator and ruler over the ice. Therefore, Job should humble himself, silence his voice, and submit to God's rule. Let's move to the tenth thing that God rules over. We've got two more here. God rules over space or outer space, 31 to 33. He says this, Can you bind the chains of the Pallades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth, uh, lead forth the Maseroth in, in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Pointing to the vast expanse above, to outer space, God is asking, you know, can you control the constellations like, you know, Pallades, Orion, and Maseroth? Do you have control over those things? Do you keep them in their place and cause them to flicker at night and to, you know, to have those shapes? Is, is this your work? No. Can you guide the bear with its cubs? No. In classic mythology, the bear with its clubs are usually known as Ursa Major. That's a constellation in the northern sky. Is that something that you maintain? And did you create that and maintain that? Do you maintain that? No. God says, Job, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? And I, I suspect this has to do with just the way the universe is, is laid out and where the constellations and planets are all in their perfect places in these things. Are you the one that laid out this? No. Did you establish the positions of the planets, moon, stars, constellations, in space high above the earth? Is this your work? Do you create and rule these things? No. What's the point? God is the creator and ruler over space. Therefore, Job should humble himself and silence his voice and submit to God's rule. Eleventh thing God rules over, last one in this chapter. God rules over the clouds, and it, it seems like a, a, an interesting order. Like To me, space would probably be the last thing that I would talk about, and here I am trying to tell God how to speak. God rules over the clouds. Elihu talked about this a bit in the previous chapter. We see this in the remaining verses, 34 to 38. Listen to what God says to Job. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? <laughs> this is like, I would run. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Stop there. Now, as I said, each of these questions, they just become increasingly absurd. Like, you know, we, okay, now we all know there's no possibility of Job having anything to do with these things. They're intensifying in their absurdity. And I, that's why I said the space one is like crazy because it's like, come on, man, really? And this is God's point. And, and, and really, 
he's now mocking Job. He's mocking him. Can you, Job, tell me, can you raise your voice and tell the clouds to dump all their rain to the point that you become flooded with waters? Can you do that? No. Can you summon lightning bolts so they appear before you and say, here we are, what would you like for us to do? Can you do that, Job? No. Can you put wisdom in the heart of man so that his mind can understand the clouds and all these things that I'm talking about here, the lightning and the clouds and the rain? Are you the one who can impart into the hearts of men, into their minds, this wisdom and knowledge? Do you do that, Job? No. Job, can you number the clouds? One, two, three, I give up. No. Can you tilt the water skins? It's almost like uh, point, pouring out a, a, a big jar in the skies. Can you tilt the water skins of heaven and, and cause the rain to fall so that it mingles with the dust of the earth and, and makes dirt clods? Remember doing that as a kid? And he says, are you the one that controls the rain so it comes down and does that? Is that you that does that, Job? No. It's not. What's the point? God is the creator and ruler over the clouds. Therefore, Job should humble himself, silence his voice, and submit to God's rule. You know, really what God is doing here is he's illustrating. See, Job is mystified by his suffering. He can't get his mind around how God has permitted this and how he's allowed it to happen and how he snatched up his children and all his wealth. He can't get his mind around his suffering. He's a righteous man. He's baffled by all these things. And what God is essentially saying is, it's not your job to understand those things, just as it's not your job to understand all these things I've just questioned you on. Let me tell you how to increase your misery in the midst of suffering. Keep asking why. That will increase your misery. Because that will strip what little peace you have left trying to figure out why. What we should do is humble ourselves, quiet our voices, and submit to God's rule, knowing, knowing that He has our best interest in mind, even when these things are very, very difficult. Closing. Wonderful quote from Steve Lawson. Wonderful. He says this, By virtue of his position as creator, God is Lord over his creation. He has the divine right to do with it whatever he pleases. The Lord is the potter, we are the clay. He is the shepherd, we are the sheep. He is the master, we are the slaves. He is the father, we are his children. The believer must never lose sight of the position of God as he reigns and rules in the heavens, doing whatever he pleases. Look, here's the deal, man. The sovereignty of God means that God does whatever He pleases with His creation. That's what that means. God loves, God despises. Romans 9.13, God puts to death, God brings to life. 1 Samuel 2.6, God makes nations great, not Trump, God makes nations great. 
God destroys nations, Job 12, 23. God causes rain to fall, God withholds rain, Amos 4, 7. God shows mercy, God withholds mercy, Romans 9, 15. God draws some to Christ, God leaves others as they are, John 6, 44. What's the point? It's His creation, He's sovereign over it, He's the Lord, he does with it whatever He pleases, whenever He pleases. And since God is holy, 1 Samuel 2, 2, Revelation 4, 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And since God is abundantly righteous, and since God never violates His righteousness, Job 37, 23, we cannot call Him or what He does evil. We can't. That is blasphemy. Even when he does things that in our finite minds are questionable. We cannot ascribe or attribute evil to him because he only does what is right and perfect at all times. Even through hard things. What would you say to someone if they came to you and you're a homeowner and you've got this beautiful house and they came over and started telling you what to do with it? You would say... Enough is enough. I paid for this place. It's mine. I can do with it as it pleases. If I want a giant Jesus statue in my front yard, I don't know why you do that, but if that's what I want, it's my prerogative, my property, I can do with it what I please. It's absurd that someone would come and tell you what to do with something that belongs to you. Amen? And yet here we are barking at God over His creation. You can't take lives. You give lives. I take them too when I see fit. God does what He wants, and He's holy, holy, holy. He's perfectly righteous, perfect in every attribute, perfect in His person. We cannot call Him evil when difficult, challenging, hard, disastrous things occur. Job, bottom line, Job struggled to understand and embrace God's sovereign rule over his life. He did, just as he struggled to understand and embrace God's sovereign rule over all men and over the sea and over the, over the earth, over the sea, over the sun, over the, over, um, the underworld, you know, over the, the light and the snow, the lightning, the rain, the ice. Wow, the it is difficult to comprehend that full-orbed, full sovereignty over all things. It's, it's challenging. There are times when we struggle to understand and embrace God's sovereign rule over our lives and everything else, right? It is. It's tough. But here's the thing. That doesn't change God's sovereignty. That doesn't change His rulership. Whether we embrace it or not doesn't change it. I've been willing to get a new president, but Biden's still there. Quite frankly, I willed a few times for Trump, too, to go. And he made it the whole four years. You know, what, what we will or what we desire or what we want doesn't change reality. God is full sovereign all the time. He rules over everything all the time, whether we want to embrace that or whether we comprehend that or not. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't change anything with him it doesn't job struggled we struggle 
that doesn't change God's sovereign rule. He sovereignly rules regardless of what we think. Understand, men do not crown God as king. He is king. Psalm 47, verse 7. As king, he rules over all. 1 Corinthians 20, or 1 Chronicles, pardon me, 1 Chronicles 29, 11 to 12. He's the king, always has been, always will. Always the ruler. And yet he shares his throne with his son, doesn't he? Psalm 110, verse 1. Mark, 11, or Mark 16, verse 19, Hebrews 12, 2, talking about Jesus. He shares his throne with his son, Jesus, whom God crowned as the all-authority King of kings and Lord of lords. Matthew 28, 18, I have all authority. It has been given to me, he says. 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 15, King of kings, Lord of lords. When you think of, of king, think King Jesus. If believers embrace God's sovereign rule over their lives and everything else, there is a blessing in this. I mean, there's a lot of blessings in it, but one that I can think of is this. Nothing fills our anxious minds with more transcendent peace than knowing that God sovereignly rules over all our circumstances and everything else. That floods us with peace. It does, and that's a huge blessing in times of difficulty. Spurgeon was absolutely right. I'm going to requote this from last week. There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. And yet it's the doctrine and, and attribute and reality of God that we kick against the most, which only hurts us. And yet if we refuse to embrace God's sovereign rule, it's going to make our lives more difficult. God sees this as rebellion especially when we couple this refusal with frustration and then accusations, because that's usually what follows. Job earned himself a whirlwind rebuke for this kind of behavior from the king, did he not? We should expect to receive no less from the same king. Question, are we willing to embrace King Jesus' sovereign rule over our lives? To humbly accept the fact that he owns and rules over everything, Colossians 1.16, and that he can do whatever he pleases with our person, with our people, with our uh, possessions, anytime he wants. Are we willing to embrace that? The embracement of it has to do with not murmuring against him when he takes away. It has to do with trusting in Him and submitting to Him during difficult seasons, whether they be seasons of comfort or seasons of calamity, to, to still be submitting and trusting in Him. It has to do with investing our time, town, and treasure in the King's cause, the gospel. Here's the bottom line. This is it. This is my end thought. As King and Lord... King Jesus demands nothing less than full submission to His rule. This is the cost of discipleship. This is what it means to bear your cross. To bear your cross means to take up 
the difficulty and the sacrifice and all the things that he had to take up in a sense to, to, to do that for him because he's your king. Again, we were bought at a price with his precious blood. 1 Corinthians 6.20 He took our sin and gave us his perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He justified us forever, adopted us into his family forever, and will one day glorify us in his kingdom when he returns. Ephesians 1.5, Romans 8.30 Bottom line, we belong to King Jesus. We are his possession 1 Peter 2.9, we belong to Him. He paid for you, He paid for me. May we more fully submit to His rule in our lives. And how might we prove this submission to His rulership, to His kingship? By obeying His commands. It's really that simple. That's how you do it. In fact, He told His disciples on the night of His arrest, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commands. The king has given everything for us. We are his subjects in his kingdom. May we give him our all. And when we find ourselves falling short of that, may we pray to him and confess and reset and begin again, moment by moment, day by day. Amen? He is our King, and He is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our obedience. No king in the history of the world has given what King Jesus has given. Never. Ultimate freedom, spiritual freedom, delivery from sin, Satan, death, and hell. This is a good king. This is the ultimate king. Give Him your, give him your servitude. Give Him your life. Give it to Him. You won't regret it. He is benevolent. He is kind. He is compassionate. He is, he is um, infinitely wise in His rule. Always does what is best for His people. Working all things, good, bad, and ugly, for our good. Only King Jesus could do that. Amen? Come on. He's worthy. Submit to Him. Submit to Him today. Amen? Amen.